Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So Jillian, thank you so much for coming on Wholehearted Eating today. We're really excited, as we were just saying before we started recording, all of us specialize in very similar fields. So this is really like talking among friends. Um, And we really did want to focus on disordered eating and eating disorders today. And so we would love if you could get started by talking about how disordered eating in itself is a stress state for the nervous system and how that impacts the body and our mental health. Sure. We'll start with the easy questions. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's light to kick things off, you know, that's right. Well, I appreciate it because I think so many people struggle in their relationship with food, which we might call disordered eating. We might call other things, but there's so much struggle, right? There's so much tension. There's so much stress. There's so much messaging. There's so much pressure. There's so much everything around food, which of course is a, a stressor and, and, triggers our our nervous system to be aware of everything and to be on alert. And how do we take that information and then try to bring a mindful approach to eating, recognizing that our society in so many ways is anything but mindful. So we live at, at odds with this desire to be mindful because we know that that's the probably more productive state in which to eat and approach food so that we can be less disordered. And yet we live in a society that is so promoting, so promoting of, um, of disorder when it relates to food. So it's a, it's a big ask, but I I do think it's an important thing to just say, like, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of messaging out there. There's a lot of inputs and that really impacts our eating in a lot of ways. So there's lots of opportunity. That's how I like to think about it. No, that makes a lot of sense too, because the way that, um, when you think about it like that, that, that there's always just hearing talking about how our relationship with food can be, I don't know, disordered or distressing is a lot of times what Dane and I refer to it as, is there's a lot of a nutrition jungle. And I think in an interview that you had in the past, you called it nutrition sensationalism where it's, there's so much perfectionism and over and way that me and Dana describe nutrition jungle is like almost like an overload of nutritional information that's out there for you, that it would be almost like a, like an incredible defiance if you weren't stressed out by (laughs) around the table and around eating, you know, or you've had to go through a lot of this, this, um, this shifting in your relationship with food for it not to be stressful. Because when you just hear or listen to the radio or watch something on TV, there's 30 different things coming at you from a nutritional state and from a, on a regular basis. So to, to think that we would somehow be immune to it impacting us on a neurobiological level and from a stress level, feels almost like a, like a feat that we're asking our body to do that it like is not prepared to handle. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, and, and add in the, the, the couple of things I was thinking as you were talking was that that jungle is so loosely based on the truth, like loosely based on science. That's where that sensationalism topic or word comes in for me that there's so much nutritional, you know, messaging in that jungle that comes from like one tiny little scientific principle that has, has scientific merit and then gets sort of built this like fluffy cloud gets built around it. That becomes much more of a a marketing tool, a um, sort of compelling messaging strategy around helping people be more worried. Like, I think if I, if I could pick one word about what all of that messaging in the jungle gets us to do is worry that we're not eating the right thing, we're eating the wrong thing, we're not feeding the right thing to our kids, 
We're going to have terrible, horrible, awful things happen to us if we don't eat the right thing. We could be doing better. Why don't we do the right thing? So it sets us up to just worry all the time, which we know is not an ideal state for our nervous system to be pre-worrying about everything that could happen and also worrying about things that are happening currently. So it's a lot of worry load on the system. Yeah, which as you've talked about in previous interviews can impact not only the decisions that we make around food, how we think about food, the way that we interact with food, and then also down the line, other things like the composition of our gut bacteria and the symptoms that we have and everything like that. So could you go into a little bit more about the concept that you've talked about before of nutritional chaos and how that impacts the body's concept of safety? And if you want to go into gut health, I we are here for it. I love, <laughs> this is what I really specialize in is the gut health aspect of things. So go off on where, whatever tangent you want to go on, we're here for it. <laughs> I love it. I love tangents. All the interesting thing ha things happen in tangents. So I think about how, you know, like even a frame, right? I love to go to Target, right? I'm from Minnesota, the land of Target. I love Target. I am, I swear I'm Target's prime, like, you know, marketing Target. I think about walking into Target or any similar kind of department store that also has food or a, or a convenience store that has food that's a large scale, right? You walk in there and the aisles are set up to capture our imagination based on what's currently happening in the chaos. Right. So when you walked into Target, I don't know, five years ago and, 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 you know, disclaimer, I don't know anything about how Target sets up their shelves. I'm just coming at this from a, from a consumer perspective. When I as a consumer walked into Target or a store like that five years ago, there wasn't a whole row, a whole aisle, a whole giant end cap of every kind of kombucha. Right. And now there is now there's this whole space in, in, in those kinds of stores that have like 1700 different kombuchas that all promise different things. That whole end cap feels chaotic to me. I walk up to that and I think, how does any consumer who's taken this little nugget of like, oh, if I give my gut bacteria, whoever those little gut bacteria are in there, some good stuff through this thing that I think is maybe probiotic or prebiotic, I don't know, some biotic, if I give them something good, that will be good for my gut health. Like, I think that's the level that consumers, you know, the information they're bombarded with, like you could do better for your gut. And then maybe there's these products that you could get to help your gut. And then you walk into the store and there are so many of them to choose from. How do we know what to do? We know from the brain science that when we're overwhelmed, which let's face it, most of the time when we walk into those stores, we're probably pretty overwhelmed because we've been coming from work or childcare or life, whatever, to get us into that, like, I got to stop and pick some things up. So we're a little overwhelmed. We come in and we're faced with all these decisions. How do we make a decision? How do we know what's the thing for us? And we know from brain science that in those situations, the best thing we can do is have fewer choices so that we can narrow down our focus so we can soothe our neurons to be able to make a choice. But there, there are the, you know, 1700 different kinds to choose from. And so I think what happens is people do one of a couple things. They look at that huge display and they're like, I don't know, I like peach and I like ginger and I like purple. And they grab those because that's just what sort of jumped out at them first. It's what sort of caught their eye. That stimuli worked for that individual person. And they take those home and they try them or they think, well, I don't know what to do. And they look up on their phone, some magic source of information to pick the right one and then pick that one. Maybe it's the most highly reviewed or the one that comes up first on Google or wherever they get that information to decide to take that one. Or they just walk away because it's too confusing to try to make a decision at that time. So we make these things sort of these decisions kind of haphazardly. And then we, we get their home with our product, whether it's kombucha or something else. And we try it, we try it once. And then we assign all sorts of outcomes to it that it may or may not have anything to do with what that product did to our gut bacteria, right? Like, oh, I tried that thing and I had terrible, whatever, bloating, constipation, headache, whatever you name it, side effect, we might start to associate with that. And then we start to build our own interesting experimental science belief that like, oh, I had that thing and it didn't work for me. Or I had that thing and it really was great. When in reality, it may have had literally nothing to do with the product that they pick. Like if I drink the thing, I drink this new kombucha and then five minutes later, I feel something, I might be like, oh, it was that. When in fact, it very likely 
whatever's happening in my gut was the result of what I did yesterday. But we don't really know that in terms of uh, understanding how our bodies work as a, as a, on a, on a population level. So we end up with this like, I don't know, sort of little hamster wheel of trying to make decisions about nutrition and what would be good for us and what would be good for our gut health and good for our brains and good for everything else. Uh, that's really fueled by what's in front of us and what we read and what we see. And if we read and see a lot on social media, then we have this whole, uh, our selections in many ways are the results of algorithms, right? So we all know that thing where you look on your phone for something and then for the next three days, it's all you get on your phone or you look, you like look up in your computer and suddenly it shows up on your phone. So just by investigating something, we're starting to get fed all of the stimuli about that something, which makes it in, in theory, it's supposed to make it easier to make a decision or like make the decision more proximal to us. But I think it actually confuses people because then it sort of puts us down that rabbit hole so quickly. So I think that that was a lot of tangents in, in a few minutes, but I think what happens for people is that there's so much information that's so diffuse, but then gets harnessed so quickly, either by in-person, you know, purchasing decisions or, or online purchasing decisions. And we do something and then we assign a whole host of outcomes to it. And we don't really slow down the process enough to say like, oh, what surrounded that? I did this one thing with my eating, but what about the time before that? What about how I felt? What about, did I get enough sleep? What about, was I hydrated? Like all of those other inputs we know impact our nutritional status and impact our gut health that we just sort of assign it to one thing. So it's really, we try to distill it down into the magic formula that will help us, which again is sort of our human want to do, to find just the thing that will help us feel better and take care of our gut bacteria or anything else that we're trying to do in health. So it gets really confusing, but I think our brains want it to be simpler, which makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, I can picture the whole thing coming down and I feel like I've had this same conversation with clients, you know, multiple times. And I think it starts with, well, I heard that, I heard that kombucha is good for you. You know, especially when I'm talking to them about, you know, they'll be running down the list of, oh, here's what my, my, um, my like food patterns are like, here's what I tend to eat. Here's what I feel like are safe foods. Here's what I think is healthy or here's the things. And it's like, oh, why do you drink kombucha? Usually they're like, oh, well, I, I heard it was good. Is it not? Like, <laughs> like, wait, what, is it not good? Like, <laughs> like, am I doing something wrong? Um, and I think a lot of times, like when I think of the chaos part, I think of like, it just feels like you're, you're running through this reel of things that are, you've heard somewhere along the line that this is somehow good for your body and so you collect them right you know you collect them as you go but we really don't have any real attachment or any real association back to the body on whether or not it's actually helpful for you or not who knows kombucha might be like the worst thing for you <laughs> for you to be drinking depending on what's going on in your gut bacteria you know um, and then for other people, it might be totally cool. Um, and I think one of the things that gives us sometimes the perception of, of safety, right? Because we feel like we're doing these things that we've been told are good. And most people out there are listening and thinking like, well, I want to do things that are like supportive for my body. And so this makes me feel like I'm doing something in that direction, um, but what we don't think about is why are we doing them? And other than this one little thing that we heard or so-and-so told me when we were out that kombucha is good for hangovers or whatever <laughs> we've been told. I don't even know if that's like a real rumor or not, but like you hear these things and then next thing you know, you're, you're attached to it and you have this pattern in your life. And then when someone comes then especially when you're in eating disorder treatment, like if someone comes in, you're working with a nutritionist and they ask you a question about it, the first thing you think is like, well, well no, like, what do you, what do you mean? I can't, like, this isn't a good thing or like, well, why do you like it? You know, do you even like it? Why are we attached to it? Why is that so safe for you? What kind of language have you learned that fed to the chaos that, that made you feel like this was something that was 
you know, should be considered safe for you to have. Not to say that kombucha is unsafe or anything, but I don't want anyone taking this and then (laughs) spiraling about their kombucha now. But I think all of these little messages that we're hearing all the time about food lead to this, like what Dane and I say and what you refer to as this nutritional chaos that's like this internal conflict of what am I doing and why am I making these food decisions and how do I know if this is the right decision um, for my unique body? And we haven't even dove into the body image piece of how that all plays such a big role in how our eating disorder or our disordered eating can impact us from impact our hunger impact the way that we interact with food and interact the way like um, impact the way that we walk through target you know Um, and what stimuli we would even allow ourselves to even get in any way so i i I liked what you said (laughs) said about the nutrition nutritional chaos and and i quite frankly think probably everyone's probably more confused after (laughs) everything i just said but but to me, I think it makes like, it's so hard to make the decisions around it. And so a lot of times we're just kind of haphazardly making decisions, but we believe that they're the right decisions because of these little sound bites that we've heard. And that is really, really difficult. And then when you go into treatment and you're working and this, I think this is why I, I don't know, now I'm kind of going into like a whole thing, but um, I think you'll agree, Jillian, but as someone who works with eating disorders really closely and also in as a nutritionist, it feels like the hardest part for them to even wrap their head around because of so many beliefs that we have around food. That it just feels like I tell my clients all the time, I'm the best friend that you hate. Like you don't want to see me. You're going to like... If you sign up with me and you're like, yeah, I'm so excited to work on this. I'm like, you're a liar. (laughs) There's no way you're pumped to be here. Like, especially if you're an active eating disorder treatment, like there's just no way because it's like this defiance of all it it's going, you go directly into that nutrition chaos and you're going to funnel through it. And then there's someone in there and you've attached to it, you know, for someone who has an eating disorder or disorder eating, you're attached to your nutritional chaos. People will ask you what you're what, what they can serve you. And people will be like, Oh, I'm confused by what I can serve you. You know what you can be served and you feel comfortable with it, which is why the control part is so difficult. But then you have someone coming in and basically poking holes in your own personal nutritional web. And you're thinking to yourself, get the hell out of here. Like, I don't want you in here. You know, this, I have found my way to feel cool and safe in the world. And you're coming in and poking holes holes all over it and asking questions like do you even like kombucha like screw you don't ask me that I like it I've been drinking it I don't know where it came from but it's safe and it's better than Diet Coke so like what do you want from me like like these are the things that are going through people's heads and I and I have to I have to like like I've been there I get it (laughs) you know But that's what it is. Like it totally impacts your body's concept of safety to like the core level because food is such an important part of how we survive. So how would you not feel safe? And then when someone comes in and tells you something new about food, you're like, oh shit. Like now what do I do? How do I weave this into my own little weird web of food and what's comfortable for me? And I I imagine that you see that all the time oh for sure totally I, I as you're talking I was just laughing I love the like it's better than Diet Coke that is exactly like I've had somebody tell me that well it's better than when I used to do this I'm like oh great let's compare it to the one of the most dysfunctional things you do you're right it is better and let's you know continue to evolve that but I do think it makes me think one of the things that I and I teach this class at the University of Minnesota about eating disorders and I tell my students every semester that one of the easy ways easy, quote unquote, ways to think about eating disorders is that they're the extremes 
They're the edges of normal human behavior. They're the edges of human behavior, right? It's not like people who do things with their food who have an eating disorder are doing things that the rest of the population hasn't thought about or taught them to do or like, you know, marketed on a broad scale. It's just the more extreme edge of that. And so I think about that as I, as I think about this whole nutrition chaos and, and everything that goes into trying to stay safe and trying to follow the rules. And of course, neurobiologically, we know that people who are, are, are you know, temperamentally more um, predisposed to, to like order and, and to be sort of taking a lot of stimuli and to, and to sort of sift that through and find the safety in it. That's just sort of part of how the brains work um, for people who tend to be more susceptible to get an eating disorder that that process of trying to keep things safe and keep things ordered and do it right, like get it right. We all like want to achieve and do the right thing that that's, you know, there's a lot of folks in the, in the world that are, that have that sort of approach to the world, have that kind of temperament trait. And again, the people with eating disorders are on the edges of that. Um, but it, the themes to me are the same. Like we're kind of looking for the thing that's going to make it safe. The thing that's going to give us what we're looking for. And so I think about that, like with the kombucha, like that's on the, that's on the side of the food section in the store. It's got its own thing. You don't have to go down seven aisles to get a well-balanced meal. You can just go to the end cap and get everything in a bottle. That's pretty, you know, promised to you to be amazing. But I think on some level, because food and nutrition are something we do so often in our lives to survive as humans, it takes such a, a, a fairly incredible resource, both from a financial and also an attention um, perspective, like we do have to spend a fair amount of our day, just, you know, healthy, free living folks have to spend a fair amount of our day thinking about what we're going to have to eat. It doesn't just magically show up on, on in front of us, uh, that we tend to try to simplify it because it's something we have to do a lot. It's resource intensive. So of course, our, our sort of natural inclination is to simplify it. And when somebody comes along and simplifies it to, you know, to this magic elixir in a bottle, even though there are, you know, 1700 choices of which bottle, but at least it's simplified to like pick a bottle and it's going to be great. We know it's not actually true that it's going to be great, but it feels like that. So how do we help people? You know, I'm always thinking about how do we help people feel confident and, and comfortable and sort of rest in some of the basics. Like if you can think about getting like, yeah, I'm a nutritionist. I want you to have fruits and vegetables, but I don't want you to stress out constantly about getting the right ones and the right amount, and the right color and the right place on your plate. Like just have some <laughs> and maybe have some that you like. Oh, how do you know if you like them? Let's talk through that. Have some fruit, have some fat, have some protein, have some carbohydrate have some sort of calcium source. Like how do we really help people to engage in more of the basics in a way that doesn't feel so overwhelming? And I think that's our that's our challenge as nutrition professionals to help people to be able to think through how do I meet my needs with things that are pretty readily available in the world to me and create a, a relationship with myself and food in a way that can really nourish me without having to go to like the flashy supplement or the thing that Instagram told me I should buy and really rest in our ability to provide for ourselves what we need and to know what it is we need because that bottle of kombucha doesn't know what we need. We have the internal knowledge of what we need. How do we help people to find that voice and listen to it and try to stay sort of grounded and a little calmer in that because then they can kind of walk around in the fray of the nutritional chaos and be like, yep, I see what you're doing over there. I don't need that. I got my thing over here that's grounded and calm and actually can be soothing, way more soothing than that, you know, buying the bottle of kombucha makes us feel safe. That's just a sort of surface experience, but at the core, it's not so safe. What's, you know, just having that bottle is reassurance. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because what you were just describing there, the first thing that I think of, you know, with regards to the earlier conversation that we've been having is this feeling of safety and comfort and where food and making food decisions doesn't have to control what feels like every aspect of your life. And at the same time, we can acknowledge that when most people, whether they have disordered eating or eating disorders or just are, you know, what we would call chronic dieters, one of the main reasons that they seek out those behaviors and plans and yes, no foods lists is an attempt to create safety because as a result of the nutritional chaos, right? 
And then of course we have this vicious cycle where the attempt to create safety and seek out those protocols when they compound because they ultimately do not actually lead to safety and we keep seeking out the next one leads to an even bigger, you know, whether we call it nutrition jungle or just a bigger cloud of nutritional chaos, right? So if we have person at like point A and they're like, I am seeking out safety, right? There's either, you know, one avenue of what ends up being the nutrition chaos or this other angle that you, you know, you're describing. But what's really interesting is the easier, more simple neural pathway or what it seems like for most people is just going to that yes, no foods list, right? Because in the culture that we live in with all these different societal pressures and depending on the body size that you're in and the color of your skin and all these different, you know, discriminatory potential factors that you run into as a person in this world, it's much easier to just be like, yes, this food is good. No, that food is bad versus Yes, I want to, you know, work on my body image, which is requires a lot of therapy and probably meeting with a dietitian nutritionist who has a grounding in trauma-informed care and eating disorder recovery and, you know, all these other things. And like you said, that in itself is additionally resource intensive in order to get to the point that you're described, even though it is and sounds so wonderful. But it's so important, you know, going back to what you said before, for us professionals who work in this field, to encourage people to learn how to just go back to those basics of nutrition in a very neutral way, trying to remove those external pressures and factors in a way that they can tune internally and be like, oh yes, eating these very basic things does feel very good for me in terms of energy and sleep and my digestive symptoms and everything. Because one of the other things that you've talked about on other shows is how malnourishment which can be caused or contributed to by eating disorders disordered eating or even chronic dieting or just inconsistent eating nutritional chaos right impacts very greatly our ability to function overall and it's really really hard to make progress in other areas of health or life when you're operating under malnourished conditions right so can you go into that a little bit more Absolutely. I think that's so key, right? We ask people to, even if, if we're talking with about somebody who's in treatment for an eating disorder or come to a, a, an outpatient team to work on disordered eating, that you can only get, you can only take your brain so far in, in going through a trauma resolution process or even making a decision about a relationship or making a decision about how you want to approach your body or even trying new skills in that if your brain and your body aren't getting adequate nourishment, right? Like how do you expect your brain to actually function when it's not getting the fuel it needs to function in the regular pattern it needs to function optimally? So I do think it's so important to, to focus on nutrition early, early and often. That's what I would say. Like, let's, you know, focus early and often because it is in so many ways, the, the medicine that's helping people to do the rest of what they need. And I've been fascinating as of late, as of late, um, with the, the turn I'm seeing the, the sort of psychological research world, um, take towards nutrition and, and gut health uh, and really focusing on how does that impact our ability to make psychological process progress in our, in our treatments. And I kind of think two things, I think, all right, nutrition folks, we need to get in there. They're in our, like, that's our thing. That's our genome. Uh, let's be there together. Let's collaborate. And I also think, yes, you're right. That's really important to focus on that, that it's not surprising, I think, to any of us to find out in, in one of the studies that was done a couple of years ago, if you take the, you know, take a gut microbiome sample from somebody with a really limited diet, like in anorexia nervosa, it turns out not surprisingly that the gut microbiome diversity is really limited, right? Like we all probably could have said, yep, that's probably what's going to happen. If you only eat 10 foods, you're probably only going to have two strains of gut microbiota in there. Where else are they going to come from if you don't actually eat any diversity? So I think that the, the, science is, is catching up with what we have seen in practice that, wow, when somebody comes in and they're limited to, you know, a, a, a small basket full of foods that they'll eat and their thought patterns are pretty limited to a small, you know, thought basket of things that they think and ways that they operate, that those two things are probably connected. 
that as we increase the diversity of the, of the food basket, we can also increase the diversity of the thought and feeling basket. And we can't really expect people to increase the diversity of their feeling or thought basket if they don't actually increase the diversity of their food basket. We know from those cool emerging studies in gut health, that's just not going to happen. You're not gonna get the, the gut brain axis connection to, to influence your mood if you're putting in the same limited uh, nutrition components into that gut. So I do think it's so critical to think about how do we tackle nutrition early and often to really support the healing that has to happen in eating disorders or disordered eating or chronic dieting. But that it, it is, it's such a, a, a dance, right? Like, nope, this way of limiting my food makes me feel okay, except I feel really crummy but I feel okay, but I feel really crummy. Like, okay, we can have those two feelings at the same time. You feel safe and terrible all at the same time. And you feel like you'd feel more terrible if you didn't do the thing to stay safe. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're gonna, that's why we're gonna do it in a, in a relatively modulated way that we're not gonna have you go from like small little food basket to entire store. We're gonna take you step-by-step step through that process, but we're not gonna get more diversity in your feeling or your thought if we don't get more diversity in your food. We're just not. No, I, I, I actually had this conversation I think some, like just the other day with a client of mine. And I think sometimes what happens is there's almost even like, um, now I, I do work a lot with, with people with active eating disorders, but not always, right? Like, and um, one of these people, it was almost like they were accidentally becoming anorexic because they just didn't have the motivation or the, there was a lot of confusion around what do I eat? And when I'm feeling, when they're feeling, when they're having depression or having a lot of anxiety, it's really difficult to weave through. We think it's hard to weave through the nutritional chaos. And, but if you're dealing with grief or severe depression or severe anxiety, then it makes it even more difficult because there's so many options that we don't even know how to choose. And so a lot of times what will happen is we don't choose. And one of the things that I said to my client that I think builds on this in a really great way from what you were saying, Jillian, um, but beyond just the gut health piece, because we know that, right? Like we can think like, if we don't have a variety, we're not gonna have a variety. Like that checks logically. But one of the things that I said to my client the other day was, how do you expect to have the neurotransmitters to create motivation if we're not giving ourselves the building blocks for neurotransmitters, right? If we're not eating enough and consistently early and often, right? If we're not eating early and often in a diverse grouping of things and we're continuing to be malnourished, whether it's on purpose, whether it's because um, by accident, because of grief or because of something else going on, how do we expect to have what our body needs in order to create what it needs in order to manage the things that we're going through? It's, it's not, it's not going to happen. So not only are we not going to have the diverse gut bacteria, but we're not going to have the building blocks that we need in order to dive deeper into the roots of recovery, you know, and be able to, to wrap our minds around it because we don't have the capacity to do it. You don't have the energy that you don't have the energy for, you know, like, and so if we're not going to give it to ourselves, that's why it is really difficult. And um, when nutrition is such an important piece of each sort of recovery, but also it's like the most like taxing part of eating sort of recovery because people are like, don't go there. Like, this is where I'm, I'm cool. I'll go, I'll go theoretical all day long, but you have to have the honest conversation of how do you expect to get out of this? If you're not giving yourself the building blocks in order to get out of it. And from a fundamental level, you have to be eating protein, fats, carbohydrates, all of the things. We can, and you can get hooked onto kombucha. You can get hooked onto some of these things because you think it's, it's like this thing. But if we're not meeting the bare basics for what we need on a daily basis, we're not going to have what we need in order to 
manage and increase our capacity for how we're going to handle stress, how we're going to handle burnout, how we're going to handle depression, you know, how we're going to handle anxiety, how we're going to ultimately handle our eating disorder. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that a little bit, if you agree, one and two around kind of like how that then impacts our neurobiology around hunger. Because then it's like a cascading, you know, kind of funnel. I mean, I'm just thinking like a tumbleweed. Right. Oh, that's a great, it's a great image. <clears throat> the tumbleweed is like, oh, there it goes. There goes another one. There goes another one. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I think that's a great point that how, yeah, how, how do we expect to be able to manage those things and we don't have the building blocks to actually produce the stuff that allows us to manage those things. So that's beautifully said. Um, I do think that I have this like image in my mind of, of you know, what, what we're trying to do, I think in, in nutrition therapy with people who are, are, are working on the relationship with food or we're addressing eating disorders, uh, that, that it's sort of like, here's my, you know, this, this tiny little room with, with very, you know, I have a tiny, tiny, tiny little room with very few people in it. And I feel safe in that place and that's where I am. And the nutrition sensationalism makes it feel like we in, in treatment or in changing our, our approach to food are taking that person to like a convention center with you know 100,000 people in it. It feels like that even when we add a slightly bigger room and a couple more people. So I think it's, it's honoring the, the person's experience of, but when I move away from this stuff I do with my eating, it feels like I'm walking into that huge, huge, huge building with you know hundreds of thousands of people. And we're there to help them feel comfortable as we take these steps or as comfortable as possible. And I, I, I think you said something in your comments earlier that resonated with this thought for me too, of like the nutrition part is hard because it's hard. It's really difficult. It's a lot of change. It's, it's, it's physiological change. It's behavior change. It's, it's planning change. It's, you know, shopping change. There's all of these changes that are required to actually, you know, make the room a tiny bit bigger and get another person in there that feel difficult. So it's not just one, like, we're going to do this one thing and it's going to be, it's going to make it easier. It's like, we're going to do this one thing and that's going to feel hard. And we're going to do another one thing and that's going to feel hard. And then we're going to do another thing and that's going to feel hard too. And then we're going to get you lots of support to manage that feeling hard. And when you feel comfortable there, then we're going to add more to it and it's going to get harder. So I do think that the, the task that that, that in the in the nutrition approach to eating disorders is I always give my clients a disclaimer like this is going to be hard I wish it were easier I wish I had an easier way to magically take you from where you are now to where I know you can get and we don't right now and so what we're going to do is get through it and the only good news in that is if you keep going and, and do it and get through it you're going to get there and and this will work like we've seen you know so many people ahead of you do it this way, super hard. And we know if we can help you to do this work <clears throat> and we're here to support you, we're gonna get you through it. Uh, I love, there was my my 18 year old showed me a little meme on, on Instagram or somewhere the other day that said, uh, we really need to figure out another way to get through it other than through. <laughs> I was like, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Except hmm, turns out there's not really another way through it other than through. So how are we gonna do that? And how are we going to help balance that? Like it feels overwhelming. It feels chaotic just to introduce a little bit more change, a little bit more chaos. Uh, so I do think it, it requires a lot of support and a lot of um, trust, faith, hope that it'll all work out. And then we as the professionals are sort of the vehicles for that to say like, yep, I know this is really hard and it's going to be okay. It really is going to be okay. And it's not going to feel okay for a while. So we're going to, all agree that this feels pretty terrible in many ways. And like many medicines, that's kind of how it works to get to you to the place where it feels really good. So let's hang in there and we're going to do this together. I think that's a key part of like a disclaimer to people. Like it's not going to magically feel better to do this work, but it's also not going to magically feel better to just drink the kombucha. I mean, I, I'm sure you've had the same experience I have where clients come in and they're like, oh, I tried this thing, whether it's a supplement or a, or a food or beverage or something, I tried it and it was like, you know, it was going to be great and it was going to make all the difference. And then it, they felt terrible. <laughs> like, well, yes, yeah, because you just poured, you know, 
43 grams of fiber into your gut. Of course you felt terrible <laughs> or you just poured, you know, whatever into your gut. Yeah, I bet that felt terrible. So those sort of magic promises can, can lead people to like try it in hopes of fixing everything. But then that also feels terrible, which helps them, I think, uh, to feel more reluctant to try change. It's really that like slow, steady, supported change that actually gets people through. And, you know, just one more thing, the really, one of the really hard things about what you just said of having that experience of, oh, you know, in the marketing and maybe other people like, oh, it was amazing and everything. If it then doesn't work for you or you do feel horrible, you then feel like it's your fault, you know, that you did something wrong. And it's like, oh, well, you know, everybody else must be doing it right. And I'm just doing it wrong when it's really just marketing. (laughs) <laughs> like the the goal of that brand is to sell the product. And, it you know, it's really um, interesting that we've been talking about kombucha this whole time because this summer we did have a whole episode all about kombucha with someone who is a CEO of a kombucha company. And at the same time, she was like, yeah, you know, here's all the, you know, benefits of kombucha. We talked about probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics and stuff. And she's in at the same time, she was like, but it's not for everybody. <laughs> and it's not like a miracle pill or anything, right? Even people who are in the industry know this. So, and especially for, you know, all of us who work in the gut health field, it's like, well, you might feel good, but it really depends. And it's never your fault if something doesn't feel good. It's not that you did something wrong. It's just, this is not the season of your life or your gut bacteria composition in which this is going to feel great. Yeah, that's a, such a great point. And I, I 100% agree. And I feel like that's so hard for people to hear because it's so simple in the in the messaging, right? Like take this and it's great. And if, if it doesn't work for you, well, it must be you. That's so easy to come to that conclusion as people. Instead of, wouldn't it be great if the conclusion was like, oh, that product's not for me. Uh, you know, and I, and I can relate to the, to a bunch of things earlier. We mentioned body image. Like I would love it if people tried on clothes and instead of thinking like, oh, my body, did, like these jeans like are not, oh, I look terrible. I can't believe they don't fit. Like, why do they fit everybody else? I hate my body. Why do we not think like, oh, not the jeans for me and make it the jeans fault and not our fault. Why is it our fault? Why are we so good at making it our fault when it's really just not the product for us? There are, I don't even know how many different kinds of genes out there and sources of genes. And just because that one pair didn't fit you in that one store or that one pair didn't fit you that somebody gave you does not mean your body's wrong. It's just that that one experience, that one pair of jeans or that one bottle of kombucha is not for you. And it's, it's okay. It's not our fault, but we are so unfortunately good at that. Like, oh, it must be me because it was so convincing. The marketing was so convincing. The messaging was so convincing that it should work for me. Like, of course it was. They put up a whole marketing campaign to make you feel like it was convincing. And they don't really want you to be like, oh, maybe it's not for me and not buy it. So it's a, it's a tension all the time. Even when you're in the recovery world, right? There's this idea that when you're going through it, a lot of the messaging that we'll hear is that all foods have to fit, right? But I I feel like I remember in a podcast with you that you said, um, it only matters if they actually work for you, like, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's such a good point. All foods are available. That's the difference. All foods can play a role. All foods can be available, but not every food has to be for you. And the and I'm going to make like a little like byline here, like, but, <laughs> but if you are, if you have a pattern of disordered eating and eating disorder, you need someone with a critical eye to, <laughs> to kind of come through and call you out on that a little bit because you might say, well, you know, these things just don't work for me. Okay, then why don't they work for you? You know, why are we why are we stuck on only eating these 10 things? You know, because every other food doesn't work for you. If every other food doesn't work for you, there's something going on deeper yeah. that we need to address nutritionally to support so that you can have a more like more varied, varied food. If you're saying, 
that um, this food doesn't work for me. But, you know, so to me, it's like you have to kind of play a little bit of the you need someone with a critical eye. And like you said, over like we've said over and over again, your support team, your team of people who are going to be helping you through it. You need someone who's going to kind of poke holes in your safety a little bit, like you said, just to make the room a little bit bigger. But I think it's also important to kind of think like not all foods have to fit either. And I think that sometimes people think that um, that in recovery, that it's either you're intuitively eating and you're doing all of the things and everything fits or it's still layered and disordered eating. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. You still get to bring intention. You still get to make choices. You still get to understand and learn what your body is. To me, the ultimate intuitive eating is one that has intention weaved into it where you're listening to your body and then honoring it you know but that doesn't mean that we're that we're um we're not malnourished at the same time and we're not we're not having a uh, a chaotic relationship with food in in terms of like the way that we approach it and in to the way that we consume it right or that we can't like go to certain events because we can't eat the food there. We can't do certain things. I, I agree. That's a, it's a great point that I think I, I do think that's true that all, all foods are available. All foods can fit, but they don't need to fit for each person. And if you're, if you're selecting foods that don't fit for you, you better have a good explanation that makes sense to somebody else why they don't. And I think that's, you know, an important, really important piece that you're highlighting that, that if only 10 foods fit and the rest don't, unless you have an incredibly severe medical condition that narrows your food intake down to those 10 foods, then that's pretty suspect. Like, what is that? You really do need a critical eye to walk through that. Um, and I, I'll encourage people like, you know, you may have decided a food doesn't fit for you once and it goes on the list. Probably you have to have a little bit more experience with that food before you get to say like, that doesn't fit unless of course you have a you know huge allergic reaction then of course put it on the list that's fine but like in general course of recovery general course of eating that if if you have a food that you don't really think fits for you you know check it out periodically even if it's something as simple as you think you don't like that food i have this like i don't like brussels sprouts right i have i just don't like brussels sprouts i feel bad that i don't like them they're beautiful when they're growing on the stock they're so cool looking i just love everything about them except the taste. I really <laughs> don't like Brussels sprouts. And I make a point of like every couple of years when I'm you know, at a restaurant and I have the good fortune to be with people who are ordering Brussels sports, Brussels sprouts, I'll ask if I can try them because I want to check it out to see if I still really don't like them. And I've done that probably, a, I don't know, half a dozen times over the last 20 years with Brussels sprouts a little odd. I just really kind of want to like them, but I just can't. So I was just at a restaurant last month with a friend who ordered a Brussels sprout dish. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. I don't think I like these, but I'm going to give them a try. And lo and behold, they were wonderful for two bites. I was like, okay, I got two bites in. And the third bite I was like, man, I'm done. Like they're not, I, you know, not push my luck. So maybe I could make progress with that. Maybe that's my you know, life's goal is to get to a place where I like Brussels sprouts. Maybe not but that we need to keep checking it out. Like we can't just make assumptions that just because one time it was difficult or one time we didn't like it, we are never gonna have it again. If I decided that the like the first time I went outside in the winter, it was too cold and I decided to stay at home for the entire winter, it's not gonna work very well. I need to figure out how to adjust and keep trying different things that might maybe open that up to me. So I do think it's the, there's a definitely a, a dance you want to do there with like, yeah, there's foods that we all don't want to eat. That's fine. Like I'll live a perfectly content life, never eating a Brussels sprout. And if I have 500 things on that list, I don't know that I'm going to live such a content life. So it really does need that sort of check and balance of you can have some of those foods you just don't like, or you just really feel like they are not foods that make you feel good. Like if you have XYZ food on a totally empty stomach and you find yourself feeling really crummy afterwards, doesn't even mean you can't have XYZ food. Maybe you just need it with a little protein. Maybe you just need it with a little fat to you know, decrease the speed at which the, you know, the glucose is absorbed. Like there might be a scientific thing you could do behind there. It doesn't mean that food is bad. It doesn't mean you can't ever have that. So I think it is really uh, encouraging people to 
the experiment and have somebody check it out. Like that's, that's most people don't have enough general nutrition knowledge to know how to experiment like that. And our folks who come in with disordered eating or chronic dieting who like feel like they have a lot of nutrition knowledge have like, they've read the whole book that's on this part of the shelf. They just haven't read these other books that are on the rest of the shelf that we have to help them to see that there's more of a world than the nutrition knowledge they have and value the knowledge they have at the same time. Like just because you know the calories in an apple doesn't mean you have the whole story. There's a lot more on that shelf that we can help you with. So I do think it highlights how important it is, particularly in recovery from disordered eating or eating disorders or chronic dieting, that you have a nutrition professional who knows what to do with you to guide you through that. 100%. You, um, when you said about trying Brussels sprouts, it made me think, oh, quickly, you made me think of my daughter. One of the things that she's three, she's four. She just turned four last week. Um, one of the things that... Um, I'll say to her sometimes, and she'll say, I don't like that. And I'll say, well, maybe you don't like it today, but maybe someday you might like it. You might like this someday, um, but you don't like it today. And today you don't have to eat it, but you might like it someday. And so she will, and it kind of will say, she'll sometimes say to me like, oh, maybe I'll like it someday. Sometime maybe I'll like it. And I think it creates like the, the, the opportunity more than it is like, oh, I don't eat that. You know, that's not for me. It's like, well, not today. And I think that's okay. And you can say that, I think also when you're in recovery as well and say, hey, I see where we're going. Today's not that day. <laughs> like, um, today's not the day that I'm going to try that. Today is not the day that I'm going to do that. But I hear you and I see you and I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying to add more people to the room. I say that to myself about celery every day of my life. <laughs> You hate celery. I hate celery so much. And like it's in a lot of things. So I can definitely say that I have keep trying it and it is, keeps being a no. Um, but <laughs> Jillian, we just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been very, I hope, illuminating for a lot of people. You've gave like a lot of knowledge nuggets and also actionable tips that I know will be really, really helpful for people. Um, so can you tell everyone where else they can find you? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. And you can um, check out a lot of the writings we have either on the Emily program website or social media or the Veritas Collaborative website and social media. Those are the two uh, eating disorder programs that I'm affiliated with under our Aconto parent company heading. So Emily program, Veritas Collaborative, tons of stuff there. I'm happy to uh, have contributed to the conversation. I hope that we're changing the world in our own little ways together. Cheers to that. <laughs> Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and if you can, we would absolutely love it if you left a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. And we'll see you again here next week.